All right. Good morning, everyone. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 this morning. And uh, just remember that I'm going to read this passage, then I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you all will respond with, praise be to God. All right. Jonah 1, chapters 4, or verses 4 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our key truth for this passage is that God graciously pursues his people so that we can participate in his compassionate mission for the life of the world. In other words, God will do whatever it takes to bring his people back through repentance into obedience to him and fellowship with him to the end that the nations may see that he is great and greatly to be praised. You see, Jonah attempted to outrun God's presence, and of course, he couldn't really outrun God's presence. It never really was an option. But his attempted flight meant that God pursued him with a storm instead of going before him in the way of peace that comes from obedience. And that's a sobering lesson for Jonah and really for us all. On the one hand, God graciously pursues his people. That is an astounding, awesome, wonderful, comforting gospel truth. God graciously pursues his people. God will come after me. God won't let me leave him. Amen. And yet, it is a weighty truth too. God is big, and I am small. And he claims my, my life, and his mission and his purposes are total and all-encompassing. As Abraham Kuyper said, it's a famous quote, there is not one square inch of all reality over which the risen Lord Jesus does not say, mine. And perhaps, perhaps in all humility, we should add, beginning with my very life. Oh, that we would not fall asleep to this truth, for we may be certain that the Lord will not let us close our eyes to it for very long. If we do, we will find out like Jonah did, that behold, the storm is coming. So as we consider our text, an initial question it raises for us is, how do you make important decisions? What or whom do you consult? What factors do you consider? You see, perhaps we're tempted to make decisions as Jonah seemed to do, based simply on the outward circumstances and our earthly perspective. As we meet again with Jonah in our text, we find that he has made his arrangements to go to Tarshish. He has gone down into the boat, and the ship has sailed. Jonah has found his cabin. The situation is comfortable enough, and he is now fast asleep. Up until the moment of the storm, in other words, things have worked out for him. They've gone pretty much according to the plan that he had laid out. Jonah has apparently given no thought to God's power, or if he, if he has given a thought to it, he doesn't really seem to care. Perhaps his attitude is, let God do what seems good to him, and I will, not be, I will not be a part of it whether I live or die. 
We should be careful. We should be careful that we do not make decisions in a similar way. It's easy enough to do. When we have a problem, we usually look to the first available solution. And if it works out, we think, great, job done. Or we make decisions based on our reading, or our understanding of the events of our lives. A path opens up, a possibility presents itself, and we think, well, this must be God's will, or at least he's okay with it. So we're all tempted to make decisions this way. Perhaps it is that we have moved to a new city without any earthly idea about where we're going to go to church or even investigating if there is a church in that city that will help us to grow in our discipleship. Or perhaps we've begun a relationship without thinking through God's definition of marriage as as a sacred canopy that displays the gospel so that two people come together to do together what they couldn't do for the sake of the kingdom alone. How many marriages do you think in the history of the world were begun, consciously anyway, on those lines? Or even down to our weekly schedules and the things we prioritize and make time for. How much of that is informed by a desire to grow in our discipleship and opportunities that we have to to live out our discipleship, the thing that matters most in this life? And, And by the way, I'm preaching to myself as much as to anybody with those examples. I've done all those things and made many more snap decisions without thinking through how it might impact my discipleship? How often in our decision-making do we board the ship to Tarshish on a sunny day, totally oblivious to the reality of God's power and majesty and his call on our lives that's just on the horizon? That's not a fun thing to preach, I have to admit, but then storms are not fun things to go through, and they're real enough. And one of the purposes of the storm in Jonah's life was so that we could learn from it. So we need to heed this. Hear what Sinclair Ferguson has to say about it. He says, The ship lying in the Joppa harbor was not meant to be a means of escape from God's clearly revealed word, but the most terrible instrument in the hands of God to bring a servant back to his senses. It was not given guidance at all, Rather, it was a severe test of Jonah in his wayward condition. Do not be guided by providences when you are refusing to be guided by God's word. Do not take the events of your daily life as your instructor when you have not taken God's word as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And we see very soberingly, as I say in this text, we see that that is what Jonah had done. He'd taken the events of providence, things had worked out for him, he was asleep in the boat in the very moment when the storm comes upon him. He hadn't taken God's word, God's call upon his life as a lamp to his feet. We need to heed that. It's a sobering thing for us, but it's a very serious thing. God will pursue us. That's a wonderful gospel truth. But oh, that he would not have to pursue us in the storm. So that's the first question our text prompts on us. What rubric are we using to make decisions? Here's the second question. In what ways have you seen God powerfully at work in and through you? In what ways have you seen God powerfully at work in and through you? Now, the reason this is an important question to ask in addition to the first one is that they're closely related. See it in the life of Jonah. Jonah's disobedience, his unconcern for the things of God in the course of the decisions that he had made, left him asleep, literally unconscious, in the day of God's power, in the very moment of the display of God's awesome power on the ocean. A pagan, a pagan, has to literally wake him up, astounded at his ability to sleep right through the storm that God had sent. 
And not only that, Jonah is the only one, apparently, on this boat that is asleep. Even the unbelieving pagans who do not worship the true God and have gone astray in their vain and wicked imaginations about how to please him, even they recognize that the need, there is a need to call out to him for their deliverance. Call out to your God, Jonah, the captain tells him. Perhaps he will give a thought to us that we may not pa- perish. You see, the pagan captain makes this connection. Here I am in this distress. It is not merely a natural phenomenon, but has a supernatural origin. If I call out to God, he will hear me, and perhaps he will be my deliverer. Folks, that's theology. Not very complete theology, perhaps, nor perhaps even very consistent in the captain's life, but that's theology. And what a contrast that is to Jonah's sleepy condition. Here's how Anthony Carter, a good pastor in East Point, many of you know him, here's how he puts it. Jonah was in a deep sleep, and he was the only one sleeping. Indeed, there is a time to sleep, but not in the midst of God's power. Not when God is working his wonder and revealing his will all around you. Not when God is calling you unto himself and revealing his purposes for your life. Yet Jonah was spiritually numb. God was doing mighty things around Jonah, yet Jonah was sleeping. God was moving and showing himself strong, yet Jonah was sleeping. So it behooves ourselves to ask, how have I seen God God at work in and through me? All of us, I think, all of us long to see demonstrations of God's power. He utters his voice, the earth melts, the psalmist says. And we might think to ourselves, well, great, where is that in my life? Where is God at work? Where is he on the move? I'm giving you, you may notice, once again, really just another way to ask ourselves the question that we ought to be asking ourselves regularly, how has God been good? It's a question that some of us, I think, struggle with answering, maybe all of us from time to time. Well, here's another way to get at an answer, to examine our lives not in morbid introspection, that is, to to look at our problems with, with fear and anxiety, but to see God in at, work, at work in and for us, to look for the evidence of God's faithfulness to the rock-solid promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, or behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Here's what I know. If you are in Christ, God is powerfully at work in you. He is. So pray for eyes to see it. The more we have before us the evidence of God's power in and through us, the easier it will be to orient our decision-making around discipleship. And also, related to this, the more we orient our decision-making around discipleship, the more we will see the evidence of God's power in and through us. So, So recognize the close relationship between these two things. And we see it, as I say, in the life of Jonah. He made snap decisions, and they seemed to work out for him for a time, but they were totally unrelated to the call that God had placed upon his life, the missional call, the the gifts that God had given Jonah to be exercised for the light and life of the world. And so he missed, he missed God at work in and through him. The, the, The great Jehovah, the one whose promises to Israel had been rock solid and sure, the one who had brought his people out of Egypt and sustained them through the wilderness, who had defeated all of their enemies in the land of Canaan and made them dwell in a good place, was with them and and sustained them through all this history. And here was God at work in the very life of Jonah in a personal way, 
and he's asleep. So we need to recognize the close relationship. How often are we developing these questions so that we can better see God at work in and through us? Because we know he is. If we're in Christ, God is working through us. And how are we making decisions that help us to be able to see these things? So that's the second question our text prompts. In what ways have I seen God powerfully at work in and through me? Here's the third. What things in your life contribute to spiritual drowsiness? What things serve to keep you alert and awake to the work of God? Here's why this question matters. Perhaps your reaction to all that has been said so far is, well, that's all well and good, but I feel like I'm Jonah right now. There's a storm in my life, and I don't know if there's a reason for hope. Will God give a thought to me that I may not perish? Or perhaps, I've been Jonah. I've made decisions. I've made decision after decision without regard to my discipleship. I haven't made the kingdom of God my chief concern in the everyday aspects of my life. What then? How shall I escape the storm? Here then is a chance to hold the gospel in front of ourselves and to be reminded of its hope-filled, confidence-in-God-producing truths. For the simple fact of the matter is that we have all been like Jonah at one time or another. We have all at times heard the call of discipleship and bolted for the exit. We've heard its cross-bearing, life-denying implications, and we, want, we haven't wanted anything to do with it. We have all made decisions in the sunlit town, with its easy promise of peace and security, without any regard for the treacherous waters we are embarking upon. So we've all been asleep at times in the day of God's power. But God. God came and did a work in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, that reconciled his fearful, sleepy, reluctant people to himself and vindicated his care and concern for them despite our rebellion against him. By this I mean that Jesus' death and resurrection to new life, by this, God made his care for his people, his deliverance of them from death, and his giving them new life agreeable to his righteousness. God's righteousness is essential to his character. It's of the essence of who he is. And therefore, if you believe in Christ and call upon his name, God is as committed to your deliverance as he is to his own name. He will not fail you or forget you. In Christ, the answer to the fleeting, anxious thought, will God give a thought to me that I may not perish, is yes and amen. There was once a time when Jesus was asleep on a boat in a storm-tossed sea. You can read about it in Mark chapter 4. Jesus' disciples had to wake him up too, not because he was numb to God's power, but because he was God, and he had the power to stop the storm at any moment. His disciples said to him, don't you care if we drown? He did care. He got up and rebuked the wind, calmed the waves, and demonstrated that in him the storm of your life does not have the final say. So let us be awake to the gospel. Let us examine our lives for the things that keep us from seeing Jesus, the things that make us drowsy about the truth of God that matters above everything else. Let us cultivate the things that help us to be alert to it. I mean, really, I'm just describing the ordinary Christian life, the, the things that we've been talking about in various sorts of language, the, the call to discipleship, the means of grace, 
running to the throne rather than away from the throne, living uh, on mission for the life of the world. I mean, this is what it is. It is cultivating our ability to see Jesus and thinking through, remembering that nothing is neutral, everything has an impact on us, everything is telling a story about who we are, about who God is, about the world that we live in. So nothing is neutral, and it's having an impact. So it's examining ourselves to see how am I being, how am I being helped and served to see Jesus? And what might might be hurting my ability to see that and hurting my ability to enter into the mission for the life of the world. So it doesn't mean going around with a legalistic sort of, I'm going to do these things to get in God's favor so that I can have a happy life or he can like me better or, or anything like that. It is recognizing this is the call that the Christian gospel is given to God's people. It's a glorious, wonderful call. Here's the invitation, and how am I going to respond to it? How am I going to cultivate it? How am I going to grow in it? Because none of us, in the ordinary course of our lives, are just naturally attuned to what God is doing. All of us are going to be asleep in the day of God's power if we just rest on our own strength. And so it's, it's, it's challenging ourselves to think through these things, to, to live into the gospel, to recognize this is a, a wonderful thing. And God is as pleased with his people who are in Christ as you could ever hope to be. And so it's responding to that, to say, Lord, I know that you love me. How then can I see it better? How can I grow in it? How can I increase my understanding of the gospel for the life of the world? You see, the gospel is the foundation of these precious and very great promises to storm-tossed believers. Whether you're going through the storm or you fear the storm that might be on the horizon, here are some gospel promises. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Therefore, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So listen well to how John Calvin sums this passage up. He says, We see here that the Lord often cares for his people when they care not for themselves, and that he watches while they are asleep. This ought not to serve to nourish our self-indulgence, for every one of us is already more indulgent to himself than he ought to be. That's a, that's a truth. On the contrary, though, this example of Jonah, whom we see to have been so near to destruction, ought to excite us and urge us that when any of us has gone astray from his calling, he may not lie secure in that state, but instead run back immediately to God. Folks, that is the main point of this passage, I think. That instead of lying secure in our state, instead of resting in the easy promises that we have believed in, the easy day when everything seems to have worked out in our favor, when we made decisions that haven't had any reference to our calling as God's people or his mission that he's given us for the life of the world, to not rest secure in that state, but instead to run back to a gracious and merciful Father. For we may be sure that he will pursue us. That is the glorious gospel truth. But it would be better to run to him in obedience rather than for him to have to come after us in the storm. But if you are in the storm, here's the truth. God is using that, even that, to mold and to shape you more and more into the image of Christ. 
So you have reason to rejoice even in that. We will see it further when we look more at Jonah, how he had reason to rejoice in the belly of the great fish. I mean, that's an astounding truth. I've always read that and just thought, I don't know if I can believe that. Here's Jonah in this dank and smelly and dark. You can't see, and he's in this belly. How in the world is he going to compose this psalm? It just strikes me as so odd. But that reveals a lot about my own heart and the ways in which I am slow to praise the Lord in difficult times, in the storm-tossed sea. And I am asleep in the day of God's power, and I tend to disbelieve his promises. And so it's a good reminder to us that sometimes the Lord does have to pursue us in the storm. Storms are not fun things. They're not fun things. But the Lord is with us even in that. He will use it to mold and to shape us into his image so that we can be awakened to our senses. We can be turned back from the path that we're following of trying to run away from his missional calling because we don't like the implications that it has for us and instead run to him to recognize the Lord is good and he is for us in all these things. So, Jonah 1, 4 through 6 teaches us that first, God calls us to examine our lives first by his word, not by our circumstances. Oh, that we would be a people who would examine our lives first by the word of God, not by our circumstances. I, I had some hesitation in even just giving the examples that I had because I thought, mm, I wonder if that will land too close to home because it lands really close to home for me. And I didn't want to offend anybody. And I didn't have anybody in this room anyway in mind when I came up with those examples. But, but they're, they're real enough. We often make decisions just in the, in the heat of the moment, looking to the first available means of a solution without any regard to what has the Lord called me? How is this going to impact my discipleship? How am I going to be served in the decisions that I'm making to be able to see more of Jesus and to be able to live out my discipleship before a world that desperately needs to see and to know him too? So we need to examine our lives first by the word of the Lord and not by our circumstances. Second, God calls us to be awake to what he is doing by being obedient to his word. You see the close, conne the close connection between these two things. We will be asleep in the day of God's power. We won't be able to see what he is doing. We won't be appreciative of all the good that he is doing, even in our own lives, if we make ourselves the center of the story. So he calls us to be awake to what he is doing by being obedient to his word. And finally, mercifully, God will compassionately pursue us when we run from him, even if that means that he has to wake us up in a storm. I would spare you the storm, even as I would spare myself the storm. Let us therefore heed Joe's experience with gospel-focused hearts. And if you are in the storm, remember, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, help us to be people who live with gospel-focused hearts and minds, that in the everyday decisions that are before us, we would be thoughtful about the ways in which you have given us to engage our discipleship and to live it out before a watching world. Lord, for those of us who do feel like we are in the midst of a storm, the waters are very high, we wonder if we will perish, or perhaps we're just anxious about the storm that is on the horizon. I pray that we would call out to you, you who are our deliverer, that we would trust in the gospel promises that you have wrought for us in the work of Christ. That instead of trying to figure things out in our own strength, we would run to your strength, 
And we be encouraged by the word that you speak over us, that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you. And that that truth would so sink down deep into our hearts and bones that we would live it out before a watching world and put our hope in the world to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.